welcome once again to the Known Pleasures Podcast. It's been a little while since we last foisted our opinions onto the unsuspecting podcast world, and this world has indeed changed since we last spoke to you. And I guess while three middle-aged men discussing the music of the post-punk and new wave era may not amount to a hill of beans in this current climate, but maybe we can just do what we do and hopefully bring a smile to some faces while we sit and wait out this period of isolation. In this episode, we stayed down under and chose another influential Australian band. So without further ado, here's Mark to introduce the subject of today's podcast. It's fairly safe to say there's never been another Australian band like the Birthday Party. Breaking out of Melbourne's posh Caulfield Grammar School must have been no mean feat for these boys next door, but break out they did. After a few musical missteps, they fashioned a sound and image that quickly made them the centre of Melbourne's burgeoning alternative scene, before setting off for the UK in 1980, because, well, that's just what you did. Returning beaten down, but not broken by London's notoriously welcoming embrace, the now birthday party set about creating a fearsome reputation as a live act not to be missed, with one journalist stating, I had missed the Stooges and the Sex Pistols, but I had seen the birthday party. The records weren't bad either. Huge, sinuous bass lines that sounded like a muscle being flexed accompanied jagged shards of guitar, while singer Nick Cave screamed, growled, threatened and cajoled with lyrics about sex, death, horror, blood and, well, more death. And while it wouldn't be entirely accurate to blame the birthday party for the subsequent invention of goth, it's fair to say they were graveside when the body was being dug up. Despite their image and wild tales of heroin addiction, alcohol abuse and infighting, the birthday party were always more than just a shock to the system. Endlessly inventive, they were Australia's only real international heavyweight contenders in the post-punk arena. I feel like we probably need to begin in Warwick Namil. Start at the start? Start at the start. I know you like to do this. 1957. <laughs> it was 1957. It was post-World War II. That's, a, that's further out this time. That's yeah, good. yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, we had uh, Rick Okasek from the cars in 1944. We were in the midst of World War II, I think, for... One of our most recent podcasts. But anyway, 957. So 1957, This we're talking um, sort of Big Bopper time? It is, yeah, yeah. Look, had had the Big Bopper perished by 1957? That's the question. Oh, that's right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, the day the music died was after 57. But, uh, yeah, so here we are in Warwick Nabeel, a town on the Flatlands, Wimmera, Wheat District of uh, Western Victoria. Pretty isolated town. Not far from a town that I spent part of my childhood in. Nick was born there and left when he was three years old. So in a sense, Warwick Nabil doesn't play too much of a part in the story. But my favourite aspect of the Warwick Nabil link with Nick is that in recent years, he's put the story around that he wants to erect a statue in his own memory in the main street of Warwick Nabil, a town he <laughs> left when he was three years old. On horseback. <laughs> on, a, on a rearing horse, shirtless. <laughs> Something Putin might do. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and uh, I was actually in Warwick Nabil 18 months ago, you know, on the main street there, having a look around, trying to kind of get my bearings as far as how... how Were you canvassing the locals, maybe getting their Uh, opinion on this? No, I think I know how the locals feel about it. Not not big Nick Cave fans? Uh, Well, there is a, you know, Nick Cave was born here. Plark? Plark, uh, well, yeah, on on the town outskirts. So they are, and and you can go on a Nick Cave tour. Really? Such as it is the house, the house house that Nick used to live in. There's already a very nice statue, more or less, uh, in the town centre. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. It, it is prime statue territory. And there are statues of several sheep being herded by a dog. Mm. And don't even think 
Nick, about replacing well, that possibly, vision. Possibly of, they of could marry life. the two images and get a statue of Nick herding some sheep. Yeah, yeah. That'd be kind of nice. Yeah, no, no, that's right. <laughs> Nick was possibly stretching the truth when he told The Guardian in 2004, we're going to make the statue in England, ship it to Australia and dump it in my hometown, which is an extremely small, ultra-conservative place. It's now been turned into a rehousing town for ex-cons who want to go straight. <laughs> Except nobody has gone straight and it's turned into this strange, lawless place. So it's just <laughs> the people of Warwick Nabil, how would they feel about that? Anyway, he did do an interview with the Wimmer Mail Times right. about this and he was asked, are you serious? You know, because it sounds like a bit of a joke. <laughs> and the front page headline on the Wimmer Mail Times made it perfectly clear the front page headline was, I'm serious. <laughs> so, Well, he always is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Never will a joke pass his lips. I don't think so. But, uh, yeah, and then he moved to Wangaratta. Oh, Wangaratta. Uh, 400 kilometres east. Oh, really? Of there. I only know Wangaratta because it featured in a song. My Wahini and Wangaratta. My Wahini and Wangaratta. What, a 1970s kind of jug band sort of? Yeah, Captain Matchbox. Let's call it a novelty song. And Nick... Uh, was in his school choir. I guess that's that would have been a defining moment for him. Got a bit of godliness into him, although he did describe the Anglican Church as the decaf of worship. So you know he was <laughs> he was yet to kind of immerse himself in the evangelism that so you know inspired him. This is lots of religious imagery in mm. his lyrics, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mark, you and I grew up in country Victoria in that general territory. Yeah, spent a bit of time there. Mm. How did he wash up in Melbourne? His Parents, was he expelled from his school in Wangaratta? I believe he was expelled, the story goes, that he pulled down his pants in front of a, an older girl. I don't know to what extent that happened. But <laughs> you mean how far down? How far down beyond the knees, I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> mm. that's the story that goes around, yeah, it's yeah, true yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah, that's but right. he was sent away to boarding school. Sent to a our posh boarding school in Melbourne, Caulfield Grammar. And then I think his family moved to Melbourne after his first year there. And the way he describes it, when he was a boarder there, everyone fought and they fought against the day kids who were known as day scrags. <laughs> and then he became a day scrag himself after his you know, first year there. I so thought it was scabs. Ah, well... Big difference. Yeah, no, 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 no that's true. Well, <laughs> You don't want to be a scrag, but it's hard to be a scab. <laughs> well, I kind of remember both terms and Mark, oh, both yeah. you and I went to boarding schools. And uh, yeah, day scrags definitely rings a bell for okay. me. But in any case, a lot of fighting, but... More importantly, he made friends with a couple of musical, talented, potential Cohorts. young Cohorts. musicians. In Mick Harvey, Tracy Pugh, and Phil Calvert was there as well. Calvert. Oh, so yeah. they all four were at the school. I've got a feeling they met Tracy Pugh after school days, but they'd been at school with him. Something along those lines. I think all four of them went to Caulfield Grammar. Hmm. And then Nick went off to art school, Caulfield Institute of Technology, studied a bit of art. He was a huge fan of the Australian artist Brett Whiteley and uh, Francis Bacon. And as Nick describes it, he was making bacon at, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at art school. I did read a description of a Francis Bacon painting. And Francis Bacon and Brett Whiteley were both capable of extremely confronting, quite kind of violent, passionate sort of art. Mm. The Australian art critic Robert Hughes described a particular painting by Francis Bacon as smearily rising from blackness like a carnivorous ectoplasm, which sounds like a review of a birthday party. 
album. Mm. So, yeah, it's... So this is where it all started. It was sort of bubbling under at this point. Yeah. Nick hasn't spoken much about this, but, yeah, I wonder the extent to which art kind of subliminally kind of got into his system in terms of the music that he wanted to make. But, of course, he was influenced by a whole bunch of other musical artists. Well, I don't think he wanted to be a musician initially. He wanted to be an artist. Mm. So when he failed at that and was kicked out, he thought he may as well pursue this music thing that he was kind of doing on the side. I think they used to play gigs, weekends, parties, things like that while they were at school. Nothing too serious, doing Roxy Music covers, Bowie, that sort of thing. Again, those guys. Until they kind of, I think they left school and you know, did, did went to college, whatever, and decided to pursue it a bit more seriously, which would have been about 76, mm. I believe, predating the punk thing that, that hit Australia kind of probably in 77. From an Australian perspective, there's the classic Sex Pistols experience in the UK, you know, and, and so many bands we've covered so far have had their kind of Sex Pistols moment, either seeing Sex Pistols play or hearing about them. In Australia, two bands stand out above all in the kind of punk firmament, and they are the Saints and Radio Birdman, mm. who are both influential in their own ways in a kind of a more global sense. But Nick saw Radio Birdman and the Saints for the first time in early 1977, and he said of seeing the Saints in particular the first time that he left the venue a different person. So, you know, he was hugely influenced, I think. And, mm. yeah, so they started gigging as a, like a punk-influenced band in 1977. Nick briefly took on a pseudonym, Nicky Danger, <laughs> which was <laughs> pretty scary. <laughs> then um, the boys next door started honing their sound and getting involved in the punk scene in Melbourne. What do we all think of the boys next door? Well, they we should talk about the compilation that they're on, I suppose. The Suicide Records compilation was probably a good point. Mm. Three tracks recorded by Greg McCainish, the Skyhooks bassist. If yep. anybody the knows big, who Skyhooks is. Australian art, art rock band. Of yeah, the kind of a glam band of the time, I suppose. Mm. Quite big in Australia. Didn't really do anything overseas. But interesting that um, they were selected amongst a, a whole bunch of other punk and new wave bands, teenage radio stars and... Jab and various other bands that were all kind of lumped onto this compilation. So, yeah, they had three tracks, one of which was a cover of These Boots Are Made For Walking, which they made a video for, which was played on Countdown, the Australian music television Mm. program. Mm. That was the first time I saw them. That's when you saw them. Mm. Right. It's worth uh, looking at. You you remember seeing that clip? Mm, Absolutely. I was still at school then, and uh, I remember we have spoken about my my mum before. But when she she, she was a big influence she on was your big music influence. taste. <laughs> yes, <that's laughs> I remember watching this, and my mum going, "Oh, I know this song," because she, she obviously knew the. She was a big Boys Next Door fan. <laughs> Nancy Sinatra. Nancy Sinatra. Sinatra, She knew the Nancy Sinatra song. And uh, she sort of sat and watched it with me. And after a while, she went, no, this isn't very good. (laughs) (laughs) But I I loved it. I thought it was great. But that was the first time I saw the face of Nick Cave. This was March 78. So this is fairly early in the piece. People, I mean, people mock Australia for being behind. But it's not too bad, you know, considering. No, no. It's a big country, small population. A kind of this had sort of seen it rallied around Melbourne in particular, I suppose. The Sex Pistols records came by ship. Well, so you had to buy Melody Maker and the NME three months after they were released. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so you had like yeah, everything. Yeah. You had to wait for it to come by ship. So things were a little bit behind. Yeah. But it sort of denotes where they're kind of trying to be. I don't know. It's quite commercial in a way of the time. Yeah. 
I remember coming mm. across that album a year or two later and didn't think a great deal of it, and I have to yeah. admit. But it, it was a good document of the time, and apparently it was a big thing to get on. Everybody wanted to be on this album, except for the bands that thought it was selling out. Yeah. Because well, it was put out by, by Mushroom's Michael Gadinsky. It was mm, a bit of a yeah. titan of the Australian music yeah. scene. Mushroom Records, whose roots were, I suppose, in, in folk and kind of rock and roll, and Michael Gudinski, the boss of the label, was not an aficionado of punk by any means, and there was a sense that maybe he was slightly trying to Bandwagon jumping, yeah. <laughs> he was trying to make some money out of it because yeah. he was, they were all going crazy in England for these bands. So yeah, yeah. I, I can't remember who I was told him, you know, you could make some money out of this. So lump together a compilation, sign all the bands. If any of them are any good, you've got them already in your own mm, music. Yeah. Well, he was an entrepreneur. He did want to make money yeah but he also like he recorded hundreds and collectors and things like that he wasn't just yeah commercial stuff it was the classic debate even though it happened maybe slightly later in australia than it did in the rest of the world are you selling out by signing up to a label are you selling out even by releasing a single independently there are all these kind of degrees of purity that the, <laughs> the bands signed up to or didn't sign up to and i mean it was slightly tacky this album i mean the cover image featured uh, a gun dripping blood, dripping blood yes. and one of the promotional tools for the album was um, chocolate licorice bullets <laughs> uh, and nothing conveys, I think we can agree, the spirit, the revolutionary spirit of punk, better than novelty confectionery. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so certain bands declined to participate, and one of those bands was uh, the Young Charlatans, and they were soon to disband, and their guitarist, Roland Howard, was soon to the join the band. Yeah. 78 he joined, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Half of the album, the debut album, is recorded without... Roland, and the second half is recorded with Roland. So mm. it's like an album of two halves. Yep. So you really get an idea when you listen to to this album, Door Door, of where they were kind of were and where they were trying to head to. Is that a, a fair? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd listened to the first half and I said to Graham, it sounds like a kind of a punky in excess to me. It's very mainstream guitar by mm. Mick Harvey. And you were saying you were surprised how proficient the guitar was. Well, yeah, the Night Watchman... And somebody's watching. That is some really precise and intricate guitar playing, and it didn't. It doesn't sound like someone who just grabbed a guitar and started thrashing away in a garage somewhere. This guy has been playing for a while to mm. be able to play stuff like that. And uh, I think I said to you that maybe some stairway to heaven in his history there. <laughs> maybe you can add a bit of stairway to heaven uh, in post-production, in just post so listeners can decide for themselves. Yes. Well, actually, maybe that's not the right song to reference. Maybe um, I don't know a Black Sabbath riff or something, but it was just. <laughs> It was just very intricate. It wasn't sort of thrashing away on a guitar. He was playing these notes really fast. And it's almost like a uh, sequence. But I thought there was a little bit of it was like the Buzzcocks. There was some Gen X style mm. songs. To me, it just seemed like of the time. Yeah. Well, we took the first half of the album, the first whatever it is, five or six tracks, yeah, you're talking about. Mm. The second half, which has you know, Roland involved in it is a real difference. I, I don't like the first half at all. I could I like mm. the second half. I like dive position, I mistake myself, and obviously Shivers is the classic Roland Howard yep. song that yep. finishes it. Shows to me what they're heading towards. Yeah. And it's interesting, it was produced also by two different people. Tony Cohen produced the second half and Les Karski produced the first half. 
who had been in a band called Supernaut, which nobody will really know. Mm. But they were, what would we call them? What sort of... Well, with a, a little bit kind of glam rock almost. Yeah, probably mid-70s uh, glam rock. Yeah. You might be able to throw yeah, a little uh, yeah. piece in there. A bit, yeah, of, a bit of I Like It Both Ways. Yes. Glam Rock Band was the first band I ever saw live. Oh, even uh, better. In 1976 uh, at, the Horsham, Horsham. at the Horsham Town Hall, 60 kilometres away from Warwick Nabil. Little, little did you know that he would be working on the yeah. boys next door two years mm. later. Yeah, so... Well, it should be pointed out that Supernaut became the Noughts. Should it be pointed out, Graham? I think it should be because <laughs> I had a friend in Brisbane who I've mentioned a few times, but he loved the Noughts. He thought they were, they were great. Well, they tried to become a punk band. Didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, well, they became a punk band. They, they saw what was happening and they thought, we're going down the wrong road here and they cut their hair. And But they, their debut album is, is considered really good. But, uh, <laughs> well, that, that's... I'm, I'm obviously by myself here. But <laughs> One quote that I read from Nick Cave about it was, um, I hate it. Mm. as in door-door. We committed the unpardonable error of playing to the thinkers rather than the drinkers. <laughs> and I don't even quite know what that means because their music was quite intellectual. Like, I think it kind of almost became more intellectual as it went on, you know, in a kind of a weird, abstract way. Yeah, it was quite generic, kind of new wavy kind of lyrics on the first album. Mm. The biblical stuff hadn't really come through. The bleakly sort of death-obsessed or death-referencing stuff wasn't so much on that first album. And it's got a very pretty conventional rock band rhythm section as well. For me, that's just about the most striking thing about the album. It's very four-on-the-floor rock and roll for the most part and doesn't really hint at What's to come? Peculiarities to Well, come. the weird thing is the album cover does. The album cover is really interesting and dark looking and mm. kind of disturbing looking, but the music just isn't. Like if you went to a record store in those days and saw that, you'd probably pick it up expecting to hear something pretty out there. Yeah. Well, and you're not going to get that. I remember seeing it in record shops as a young lad and finding it absolutely terrifying. It's like it was, scary, it, was it? it was just about the scariest record cover, this big scary head of this like convict looking guy with what prosthetic forehead or well like a Charles Manson sort of thing mm. stamped onto his forehead yeah a gallows yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's quite out there <laughs> so but there were hints on a couple of the uh, later songs of Roland's guitarish skitterish weird quite manic guitar stuff on after a fashion <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I like the second half. I can see what they're, where they're trying to go. Yeah. Side two. Side two. But that was um, June 79. Well, I guess when their albums had sides, that's right. But now, on you know, the digital era, it's the, it's the second half, six yeah, to yeah. ten or whatever it is. And the song Shivers probably deserves a kind of a mini podcast mm. on its own because it was a hugely significant song in the Australian kind of post-punk world. Several bands have done versions of it. Boys Next Door's version wasn't the first because they're young charlatans. Oh, the Young Shelton's did it. Okay. Mm, yeah, and Roland used to sing it. Mm. And they, he, I think he may have wanted to sing it on this one, but they basically went, no, Nick's the singer and Nick's going to sing mm. it. And they weren't allowed on Countdown because of the contemplating suicide line, but apparently they did play it live on the Saturday morning children's show, Hey, Hey, It's Saturday. 
<laughs> as our Australian, our older Australian listeners will know, was co-hosted by an ostrich named Aussie. So that's the context of the birthday party playing this this song at 9.30am on a Saturday. A show yeah, that was they announced little, cartoons. little sketches Did and you not see it Warner Brothers show, cartoons. And I remember seeing it though because I remember my friend from high school telling me he really liked it. He was a big fan of Leonard Cohen. And he said, oh, I love that I've been contemplating a suicide line. And um, Frank was quite a happy guy, by the way. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was a hit it was a years later. It's, it's a classic Australian song. It, it's been inducted, whatever the word is, mm. into the, uh, you know... <laughs> into rock. the metaphorical Australian rock hall of fame. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's recognised as one of the classic songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. It, which it is. One thing that's quite striking to me about the difference between the first half and the second half of the album in terms of when they were recorded is that Nick's father died in a car crash between the first session and the second session in, oh, wow. in October 1978. And the news came through, it's kind of gone into Australian kind of music folklore, I suppose, that the um, the news of Nick's father's death came through when Nick's mum went to St Kilda Police Station to bail Nick out um, he'd been charged with burglary. Bail him out again. This wasn't the first time. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. Yeah, so the death of, of, of Nick's father, you know, you can endlessly speculate about how significant that was in terms of his subsequent career, but his father was a very kind of literary man. He was an English literature teacher. He took literature very seriously. You're Dostoevsky's and you're... Uh, he was a big fan of a famous book by Nabokov. <laughs> uh, those sorts of kind of heavyweights. And he was always told... Nick was always told that, you know, this, my boy, is, is literature. And mm. his father didn't approve of this rock and roll nonsense. Mm. That was the point at which Nick's father died when Nick was, as he says himself, his father died at a point in my life when I was at my most confused. I wanted to impress him, but... I was a self-made monster in his very home. You know, that's how Nick saw mm. you know, his, his relationship with his father. So it's really sad. And, uh, yeah, but the extent to which that influenced his lyrics, up to question. So are we closing the door-door and moving on to <laughs> Hee Haw? The EP, four-track, four five-track EP, that was released in December 1979. Yep. Self-produced. The door-door album had been released by Mushroom. And you can see why... From a commercial music perspective, you can see why the first album, quite a likeable album in its own way, although not, not very distinctive, the Door Door LP. The Hee Haw EP, on the other hand, was, I mean, we've talked about bands that have quantum leaps. Um, Watershed moments. Yeah, between one recording and another. Japan, famously, between their second and third albums. What on earth the birthday party did between... Door Door and Hee Haw. Well, it's only really <laughs> six months between the releases. I mean, the, the re recording is earlier, but by the time Door Door had come out, they'd moved on to these other other sounds and influences. Mm. Um, I think it's fantastic, Hee Haw, the five tracks, like Hair Shirt, it's great, Red Clock. That's where I can start to see what they're going to do. This is the seeds of the birthday party here. Absolutely. I really like the red clock too. Mm. There's a harmony bass bit in it, which is fantastic. Mm. 
that um, just five songs? Just mm. five songs, yeah. It's a real groundbreaker. It's only 16 minutes or so. It's very short. But I um, I think that really set set their stall out for where they were going and you know what they wanted to do, I suppose. It's a fair call. I mean, it was only an EP, so it really didn't have much impact apart mm. from getting played a lot on independent radio and, um, and, and giving them a bunch of new listeners that probably hadn't really been interested in them up till then. My favourite aspect of the EP, and there are some songs that I like and some songs maybe less so, and just about my least favourite would be the opening track, A Catholic Skin. But you can instantly hear what the band is going to become because mm. it's abrasive and uncompromising and it's really barely a song at all. It's kind of quite formless. And I don't know whether they'd been listening to bands like the pop group and Pear Ubu those kinds of influences are beginning to make themselves felt mm. and it really is music without rules. Death by Drowning is probably my favourite because it's got a real kind of low-key drama to it. It's got a bit of swing, a bit of air. They've discovered space. There was no space at all really on on the Door Door album, but this, this really uh, breeds. <laughs> They had been forging a pretty strong live reputation, playing a lot of gigs. I think in their career they did something like over 400 gigs mm. in total. But this um, was the point where they decided that Melbourne wasn't big enough for them. Yes. There's a really interesting quote about Melbourne back then uh, from one of the books I was reading. And I think it's kind of important because it gives you context. It's easy to say Australia these days is a different place. But I don't think unless you grew up in Melbourne or Brisbane or Sydney in those years that you can really understand mm. how stifling it was and how there were very few interesting people and it was yeah. just it was hard I mean and that's when you lived in a major city I can't remember the quote but no, I'll, it basically says that Melbourne was was a city with a center about a mile square surrounding this modest metropolis were endless acres of suburbia characterized by eucalyptus trees milk bars carpet emporiums scout halls and local chapters of the returned servicemen's league mm. that, that sounds nice yeah it sounds like your idea of heaven <laughs> But anyway, yeah. it gives you a bit of an idea. Yeah, no, Melbourne no, wasn't no. this great metropolis, this cool, hip place yeah, that it is yeah, now, yeah. and I don't think Sydney was any much better. No, and Brisbane no. certainly wasn't either. No. So the, the, the sense of having to escape these places to do something else after playing to the same couple of hundred people yeah. for a year or two was really heavily weighing on them, I think. Can I just say, uh, I'll just let our listeners know that we are recording this podcast on the 29th of February. 2020. Uh, the birthday party moved to the UK on the 29th of February 1980. So it's exactly 40 years ago today that they uh, went to the UK. Well, the, the great image that I have of them leaving Melbourne is that all their fans and family went to Tullamarine Airport to see them off. Because that's what you did back then yeah, when you yeah. went to England, which is what bands had to do, what anybody had to do was to go to England. Mm. Um, they couldn't work in the US because of the visa situation. Mm. So England was the next best thing, which is a time-honoured tradition for Australians to go there. But it would have been awfully tough to land in England in winter as an unknown. And I don't think they had any contacts. It wasn't as if they knew any bands. It wasn't as if they had any record company connections. They were with this independent Australian label Missing Link. They arrived there. Roland got malnutrition, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and he wasn't he wasn't that kind of bulky to, to, to start with. <laughs> None of them were, no. No, no, that's right. And I did read that uh, Nick washed dishes at the London Zoo for about a week. Tracy was a cleaner at Heathrow. Uh, I think Roland washed dishes as well for a did week. Did he? Okay, yeah. yeah it's yeah. interesting that the animals at the zoo use dishes. <laughs> <laughs> That's some posh animals right there. <laughs> 
Yeah, I love Nick's quote about Roland in particular. Roland took London personally as if someone had built it to make him unhappy. (laughs) And it sounds as if that first year they could only scrape together 10 gigs in that time and they'd played 150 gigs either in the previous year or the year before that. So they were a properly battle-hardened outfit. So for them only to scrape together 10 gigs must have driven them mad. Yeah, and they only had a bit of money that they'd saved up from their gig in Australia, really, and whatever jobs they could get. Yeah. Um, There's a great quote that Roland says, I had malnutrition. I used to lie on the couch every day. I felt like I was 80. I could hardly walk. Nick told me I never looked better in my life. (laughs) I went to the doctor. He diagnosed me and he said, you need three big meals a day. And I said, I've got no money. Can you give me vitamins? And the doctor replied, well, I'd rather be interested and see what happens if I don't. <laughs> Actually, maybe you'll die. And when I went back to Australia, they said, your hair's falling out. Everybody was horrified. <laughs> wow. So that was England in, in 1980. And it probably wasn't helped by the fact that, well, Nick was certainly a junkie when he arrived in London and he was disappointed to find that people frowned upon heroin in England <laughs> because the uh, musicians there, like in Melbourne, it, it was very much the done thing. It was cheaper and better in England apparently too, So, which is a weird thing. Uh, Obviously there okay. were people into it in London, but he, he found no trouble getting it. In the midst of this, they did manage to uh, release a single, a UK-only single, I think, in October 1980, The Friend Captain. You, you love your and Sounds magazine did review it. Was that on 4AD? I don't know. I think it was. I think they got it. They got a distribution. Yeah, they got they got signed by 4AD in 1980. Yeah. They had made some connections, obviously, by that stage. Mm-hmm. I like the Sounds magazine review. They said that the friend catcher sounds like a very drunk Joy Division, which <laughs> is the kind of band that I'd be I'd be interested in happy hearing to right hear now. at any time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, great song, The Friend Catcher, which mm. was to show up, if I can go ahead, to November 1980, yes. after they'd returned to Australia to record the Birthday Party album, which, you know, is a great album. This is the point where they kind of had changed their name. There's some confusion about when that actually happened, but somewhere while they were overseas, they changed their name to The Birthday yeah, Party. They actually changed their name as they left Australia. So just going through the departure gates, basically. Basically, yeah. From now on, call us the birthday party. (laughs) But I think they did several farewell gigs before they left Australia and they the final gigs of Boys Next Door. And then, yeah, they kind of mutated into the birthday party, I think, basically somewhere uh, over the equator. Over the Indian Ocean. There was a gig they attended on the 19th of April, 1980. They went to a Cramps concert and the lead singer, Lux Interior, had painted his chest. I'm assuming it was an interior paint. But, um, it was a gloss, a semi-gloss. <laughs> Deluxe. <laughs> um, uh, but Nick saw this, so apparently, you know, because later on Nick used to paint his chest all the time. Mm. You, know, mm. you see Nick the Stripper video and everything. Yeah, yeah. And apparently that's where he got it. He, he they were a big influence. I think they liked what the cramps were doing, yeah. certainly in the live context anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the gigs that they did in England weren't really noted by anybody, but I don't no, know whether no. they had completely cultivated the sort of yeah. wildness that was to come. No. Was certainly building. You don't get a sense that they'd made any impact at all in 1980 during that first year. I might be wrong, but you know, the reviews were about to change, to the best of my knowledge. But when they came back to Australia, they um, were sort of hailed as conquering heroes because they'd had a couple of reviews 
they'd played some shows that had a single release. So in Australia, that meant everything because everybody mm. followed what Enemy and, and Sounds had to say. Yeah. So they were sort of hailed as, as someone that had kind of had some impact when they came yeah, back to Melbourne. Yeah. And the weird thing in terms of their recordings is that the Birthday Party album was basically released on their return mm. in November 1980, but they'd recorded it a year earlier. Mm. So, oh, right. well, um, plus you've got you've got the tracks off the EP that are included on the album. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. The entire album, I think, had been recorded and finished before they left Australia, and now they were back. You know, nine, ten months later, with this album out, and you know, they'd probably moved on a bit. But I think it's a really interesting album, and it's you know worthy of note, even if they were about to go into the studio to record another album again. Mm. I, I love this album, Mr. Clarinet's a great song. Waving my arms about and hats on wrong are really a big pointer towards where, not just where they're going, but where the Melbourne music scene's yeah, going. Yeah, absolutely. If this wasn't a huge influence on Hunters and Collectors and the Models, mm. I don't know what was because this sound with the bass up front with that kind of chunky yeah. sound, the darker themes, um, you can see lots of people kind of taking note and going, okay, this is actually a unique sound. This is not really copying anything else that we know of anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly those couple of songs. Um, Hunters, I reckon, took a huge influence from this. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say that. Every now and then when I listen to the birthday party, I hear Hunters and Collectors. Well, Tracy Pugh's bass, I think, is, yeah. is stands alone in, in Australian music anyway for having influenced a lot of other people. Mm. And, and Nick's image, of course, was becoming more and more out there. Yeah, like yeah. proto-goth image influenced a lot of people here. Some songs on it which I think are absolutely fantastic. Uh, Hats on Wrong. friend catcher you know again it has that kind of swing that groove hats on wrong graham you're a time signature guy mm-hmm. he's got the weirdest time signature i think it's a, it's got a cycle of one bar in four eight and a second in five eight uh if i'm wrong about that i'm you know i will well i'll definitely play a bit of it and i'm going to have to go back i've noted a few of their time signature things here but not on this album well they were definitely listening to your, your pop group and and pierre and ruby and all this sort of thing on this album yeah yeah i know that when they went to england they were extremely disappointed with what the punk new wave scene had turned into because it was around this point in 1980 that the pop sort of scene started to take over in the uk this sort of stuff was seen as old school and things were mutating into mm. different ways. Punk mm. was becoming either the the oi side of things or the, the pop side of things or maybe the, the, the beginnings of goth. There were lots of strands and, and the whole thing had kind of collapsed on itself. But they, they didn't like anything that they heard or saw. They hated Echo and the Bunnymen yeah. and Simple Te- Minds. Explodes, teardrop, they hated them. Yeah, all those sort of things. They just Psychedelic went, furs, they didn't like didn't They like didn't like any of it. So they were kind of really disappointed. <laughs> That's weird considering that I think Phil Calvert wound up playing with yeah. Psychedelic Furs yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, years later. He did. There was a quote from Nick around about this time, which was, all these bands, weird, floppy fringes, they'll be gone in two years' time and you'll never hear of them again, which is pretty funny given that you know, Duran Duran have been around like, forever, <laughs> un- uninterrupted the last you know, 40-odd years. Yeah, he mm. might have got that wrong. There's a mm. great photo of him at a club called the Bat Cave, I think it was, which was a, sort of a, not a new romantic club, but in that sort of vein, you know, people dressing up like crazy. And the picture of him and this, this guy next to him looks even weirder than him. He's sort of staring at him. Yeah. 
and sort of almost adoration. Nick just kind of looking bemused. <laughs> so how, how do they end up here? And I think the lyrics were getting more kind of abstract and, and surreal and they were often really funny as well, which people don't give the birthday party well, really any credit for, or much credit for being genuinely hilarious. Can I just say that at the end of 1980 they played Brisbane? Did you know that? Um, I know they came back and did a pretty extensive tour, yeah. They played the National Hotel. From the fourth of yeah, I played there too. It's like years later, we'll we'll get to this later, but when I I missed seeing them at the New York Hotel, I thought that was the only time they played Brisbane. But they played before. But they played before. Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't aware of them at this point. I think Nick the Stripper was the first time I came across Mm. them, which we'll get to, but but I don't know why I didn't know them. It's pretty unforgivable, but but I did. (laughs) Unforgivable. You're, you're, you're forgiven. <laughs> you're a harsh critic. I'm mm. a harsh critic on myself. Well, I should have known, but um, I guess I was otherwise occupied in mm. 1980. And also, in, in New Year's Eve 1980, at the CB Ballroom, Tracy Pugh got in trouble for throwing a stage diver off the stage. Now, that's weird to me because stage divers throw themselves off the stage. <laughs> so That's right. Surely mm. he would have been upset if he threw him maybe back, that's, back onto yeah. the stage. Maybe that's the problem. He was upset that he didn't get to throw himself off. Mm. Mm. I think a stage diver who hasn't dived yet is a stage occupant. <laughs> well, that's yes. right. <laughs> stage <laughs> invader. <laughs> that was a great game. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the, one of the first times that Tracy Pugh got in trouble. Well, not the last <laughs> not time the last he got in trouble. Time, no. I think we're starting to see the beginnings of the... Um, the, the it was not a myth yeah. about their shows, their no, live no, shows, because no. we, we'll talk about the next album in a minute, but it was around this time that they started to really confront audiences. And I think it's been referred to as kind of a Brechtian theatre kind of idea of the audience is part of the show. There's no there's no barrier between us. Mm. You, know, you go and see a band and you basically stand there and you watch and you, you do what you're told, like Pavlov's dogs. Mm. Their shows are all about provoking people to do something mm. and mm. they certainly got that in spades as the years went by. Yeah, and all, yeah. all of the members would seem to be quite happy to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm the only one that saw them out of the three of us, so I'll talk about that in a bit. But but you read some of the stories and I, and I don't think it's exaggerating it to say it sounds like mayhem some of the time, mm. certainly down the front of the stage. Yeah, and in yeah. a way that the, I think they took their cues from the Stooges and the Sex Pistols about they weren't happy with people being complacent. They wanted a reaction from them. Yeah, yeah. How absolutely. much of that was theatre and how much of it was real and what lines were getting crossed and how dangerous yeah, yeah. it was is is a whole other yeah. story. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was it was pretty tame then in 1980 mm. compared to where it was about to go. Where it was yeah. about to go. <laughs> well, I think they were so pissed off with London. That's the stories that yeah, I remember. Yeah, they, yeah. They've just found the experience so dispiriting. They just got so angry about it that they decided to just kind of provoke people mm. and try and get some reaction out of them because they weren't getting anything, yeah, getting anywhere. Yeah. I'm not sure if I should mention in passing about the lyrics, which I was speaking about several minutes ago now, but happy birthday. I love the fact that the birthday party have a song called Happy Birthday. Well, the lyrics it's to that are perfect. great. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's the, right. The punch and in the belly, that one? It's a song about an 11-year-old kid's birthday party, I think. Uh, and I've got to say that the guys in the birthday party 
were going to different children's parties to the ones that I went to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because there were no samurai swords. My favourite lyric is, the best thing there was the wonderful dog chair that could count right up to ten. It went woof, 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 I thought he said dachshund, as in a dog. <laughs> I thought he was saying it. So there you are. I said that. <laughs> yes. So, so who says they don't have a sense of humour? I mean, come on. Yeah. If you're taking that at face value, you know, mm. I think you need to have a good, long, hard look at yourself. Look at yourself, yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about, are we moving on to 1981? In 1981, I think, yeah. Because this, to me, I'm going to go out there and say this is the groundbreaking album for the birthday party and mm. for Australian music. There's, there's not another album like this. Prayers on Fire? Prayers on Fire, April 1981, produced once again by Tony Cohen and the band. I rate this as one of the top ten Australian albums of, of yep. all time for me. Um, yep. It was hugely influential. It stood out like nothing else. I, I was obviously into all of this music in a big way at that time, but when I saw the video for Nick the Stripper, I was my jaw hit the floor. I just didn't know what was going <laughs> what on. The hell's going it was on there? terrifying. It was mm. confusing. Um, it was a great song. <laughs> The story about the making of the film. Please. I have, yeah, I, oh, but I'll let you. I'll let oh, you no, tell no, it. No, no. Well, I know a little bit about the basically that they, they, they had to, uh, the producer or the video guy had to steal equipment and film stock and yeah, yeah. and they kind of uh, set up somewhere and had people setting fire to things and there was a bit of mayhem <laughs> involved. Yeah, it was it was completely illegal. Illegal. And they yeah. filmed the film clip at the uh, at the Hawthorne Tip, as in the local junkyard. Um, Ooh, which was of... to come later. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Hawthorne is a very leafy, comfortable, middle-class uh, suburb of Melbourne and they just decided to film the film clip there without getting permission, as, <laughs> as, as far as I know. It was directed by Paul Goldman, who later directed Better the Devil You Know by Kylie and clips by Elvis Costello and Berlin. And according to Goldman, uh, we bust in a whole lot of people from a psychiatric hospital. Sounds like a good story. We, we had a friend who was a night porter there and they all dressed up in costumes and then we set fire to part of the tip and the fire brigade and the police turned up. We had explosives there, took 10 hours to shoot. We ran out of fuel for the fire so people tore down back fences from nearby homes. Who wouldn't have wanted to be there? <laughs> yes. Well, if you Iconic. get a chance to see the video, it's a fantastic video. Mm. And mm. the song is fantastic. It's a yeah. threatening yeah. kind of dangerous sounding song which is what the birthday party became well i can feature a bit of the song on the podcast but i can uh, put the video up on our facebook page so people well, can have a look it's a real rarity as a song in that it is completely crazy mm. but really catchy as well and mm. it's funky and it's menacing and mm. hilarious and it's just it just covers so much ground. It's got a few different melodies from the horns to the guitar riffy kind of stuff. There's a lot going on. Yeah. And, yeah, mm. like it's, it, it's It stands just, alone. I mean, the whole album is, is fantastic. I mean, it opens with Zoo Music Girl, which sort of has that influence once again of the pop group. Yeah. The kind of Burundi drums and mm. the whole kind of jungle thing going on. And, again, the humour. They're, yeah, exactly right. Great lyrics. Let me die beneath her fists. Is one of my favourites. <laughs> um, I just want to say this album, they say, is, was a reaction to London, to how they felt about London. Yep. Um, the song King Inc. has the mm. most threatening kind of evil bass line that I can think of. I, I mean, I hear that 
I just, it sends shivers. It's kind of eerie, the whole song. And the lyrics to King, obviously referencing himself again yeah, in the yeah. cave, it's fantastic. Yeah, you yeah. must play a big chunk of that, Graham, because it's great. <laughs> I'll play the whole song. <laughs> play the whole song. Cut out whatever we're talking about. Yeah. Um, and then they also used uh, Equal Local uh, as a brass section on this album. Maybe uh, on Nick yeah. the Stripper, I think. Yeah. Um, a local kind of jazz yeah. uh, ensemble. And Nick can be quite self-deprecating about the early stuff, uh, Boys Next Door and Birthday Party and so on. Hmm. But he did say that he clearly remembered listening to King Inc. with Roland after it had come out and he was thinking at the time, there's something going on there that's not like other people's songs. Right. And he obviously loves the song because he compiled his lyrics in the and late poems, 80s. In a book, everything, his writings. His writings yeah, yeah. Uh, in a book of the name King Inc. Mm. So, you know, he was oh, obviously right. happy to, to have that come back into, into people's consciousness. Apparently the bass line was written by um, Roland Howard on a guitar. Oh, okay. Roland and Nick wrote the song and then gave it to, to Tracy to play. Right, right. But uh, the bass sound, the bass playing on this album, I love it. I reckon it's their the, the most experimental and diverse album. I really like it when they do slightly jazzier stuff, like capers. That was a bit of a thing too then, remember yeah. the Laughing Clowns and people like that doing that yeah. sort of stuff? It became sort of a thing that happened around that time. I thought Figure of Fun was like early Hunters. Mm. Mm. Um, Dead song, he sings like David Byrne for some reason. Then all, all of a sudden just you and me with just the piano. It's, it's a really, it's really good, complete album. Yeah. I mean, and it did well. It, this was their first success. It, it was a UK indie chart hit number four oh, and really? really set the band up in England as something to watch and they yeah, stopped yeah. being mocked as Foster's swilling Aussies you know that everybody gets you know they love <laughs> to do that about Australians um, fantastic album stands the test of time still now as far as I'm concerned great mm. cover scary as all hell as well yeah, yeah, yeah everything's about it scary and not long after that if we can move on to Release the Bats comes out. Uh, yes. I was just going to say one last Well, detail. I was kind of asking, did you want to continue? Yeah. I <laughs> know. Yeah. Oh, well, this has got nothing to do with the birthday party, but, but okay. it does. It's really about my own life and, <laughs> okay. and, and Settle philosophy. Settle down, everyone. This can take a while. <laughs> now, Patrick, we are. I was having a hard time we, we do have a pod- time. <laughs> we have a podcast all about you in a few weeks, so <laughs> yeah. we can save it for then if you know. But, uh, yeah, the Prayers on Fire album was recorded at two studios, AAV Studio 2 and Richmond recorders and two or three months after birthday party left richmond recorders men at work came into the studio and recorded down under so the idea of this spiritual space you know this the ambience this room would still have had kind of echoes of nick the stripper or of that album in it anyway and then men at work come in and record the chart topping businesses as usual album and (laughs) who can it be now and all that and just the idea of those two bands having been in the same studio weeks apart with their <laughs> colossally <laughs> different That's bizarre albums. but then again business as usual and prayers on fire yeah they're yeah. pretty much the same <laughs> pretty much the same album um, I also wanted to mention that uh, I, can't, I don't think it must be the uh, producer who said this but um, uh, when they went into the roundhouse 
studios to record release the bats the receptionist called the producer and said i think your band has arrived at least they look like one of your bands can you get them out of reception they're scaring the other clients <laughs> yes <laughs> well that was probably nick lornay possibly yeah i think release the bats he was fresh from doing public images flowers of romance or around about that time also yeah. worked with killing joke it was about to but he did say that they walked in looking like they hadn't slept in days but he also added that being australian they were actually very polite yeah well, they were all private schoolboys so yeah. you'd expect that much mm. Mm. um but yeah uh, a one-off single that was not on any albums set them up again was a big hit and kind of yeah, yeah. opened more doors for them. It's well, kind of a weird rockabilly goth thing. Mm, I don't know what you'd call yeah, it. Yeah, it was probably the birth of them as kind of goths in the kind of public consciousness. Mm. And I think people, again, took it maybe more seriously than they should have done. I mean, there's a sequence of lyrics at a certain point towards the end, which is sex, horror, sex, bat, sex, horror, sex, vampire, sex, bat, horror, vampire, sex, cool machine, horror, bat, bite, cool machine, bite, sex, vampire, bite. The stream of consciousness. And, and the theatricality, the kind of campness of it is you know, almost kind of laugh out loud mm. funny. And I like the stories that Nick Lorne tells about the recording sessions where you think of Nick as being the kind of person driving the band and the other guys were almost like his backing band, you know, which is maybe how it evolved. Well, he with, likes to maybe make it like that too. Mm. In subsequent years with the Bad Seeds, it probably was more like that. But the way Nick Lorne tells the story, Mick Harvey and Roland were definitely driving the session. They were the opinionated ones. And the B-side of uh, Release the Bats was Blast Off, which has an extraordinary little section of Nick screaming blast <laughs> off. <laughs> and as Nick Lorne says, um, they got Nick Cave to redo over and over the blast off bit just for laughs. And Nick was completely out of breath and almost collapsing <laughs> by the time they got the 25th take. And then I think they decided that the first take was, was good enough. <laughs> and again you see they had a sense of humour yeah, yeah yeah. and then as Nick Loyner tells the story and then they went back to picking on Phil Calvert <laughs> well we, we should point out that all the stories I read about the birthday party poor old Phil seems to be the nice guy of the band mm. that everybody else picks on and Roland tells a great story that when he joined the birthday party he was nice to Phil and he was polite because he's the new guy so he's nice to everybody <laughs> And Phil, who'd been nice to everybody, started to slowly become really horrible to Roland <laughs> because he was showing weakness or something. Yeah. The weird yeah, band yeah. dynamic that there mm. was. So Roland started treating him like shit, you know, mm. like everybody else was, and he started becoming subservient and nice to Roland. So yeah, yeah. they had these strange revolving <laughs> roles. unusual dynamic, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's like most bands. You get the little clique between two members and then they gang up on the other members. But it seemed to be poor old Phil that copped it for the most part, unfortunately. As you say, they were beginning to develop a bit of a reputation that was spreading the word about the band and they were touring around about the time that Release the Bats was released. They were touring with Bauhaus. Mm fellow um, members of the Gothocracy, the Bauhaus, if anything, were slightly higher up the Gotharchy. Totem pole. The Gotharchy, <laughs> I like that. (laughs) 
But uh, yeah, David J. Haskins of Bauhaus, in his memoir, Who Killed Mr. Moonlight, said of touring with the birthday party, he says, this extraordinary band of firebrands, the birthday party, was actually third on the bill, as in, you know, opening from three bands. But whenever we could, we'd go out into the crowd to watch them deliver some of the most devastating performances we'd ever seen. The sound was wild and anarchic, taking off on fierce, unexpected trajectories, lurching this way and that, but always with everyone going at the same time and in the same direction. Seeing the birthday party go out and deliver night after night certainly made us pull up our fishnets. In stark contrast to 1980, when gigs were few and far between and London and the UK were seeming like a dead end, Mm. doors, doors were open. Doors were open, yeah, absolutely. There was also the last night they played with Bauhaus. They uh, ran up onto the stage, held Peter down, and the, uh, I think it was Tracy Pugh drew a penis on his chest with a felt pen. And as you do, and, oh, and, those and I'm sure, lads. yes, uh, I think Peter looked down and saw what they drew, and he, he cracked up laughing. So it was it was all done in fun. It was all good, clean fun. But I'm sure Tracy was brought before the uh, birthday party HR department once again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, it sounds like the, the gigs were sort of turning pretty chaotic at this point. There's a, there's a note here from the last gig they played in England on uh, 11th December 81 before returning to Melbourne, and the uh, this is from Ian Johnson's biography. Nick attempts to climb the PA on numerous occasions. Tracy keeps falling over backwards. Fights erupt on stage and off. Nick beats up a heckler during She's Hit and subsequently forgets the song, for which Mick punches him in the mouth. Tracy overdoses before the concert, Nick after. <laughs> That's Another the last show. Another pleasant evening Another in the nice of the night out with the birthday party. <laughs> uh, that's December 81 before they came back to Australia. Yeah. So it does seem to suggest that their gigs were varying in quality. I you think know, if they had a good night, they had a great night. If yeah, they had a bad yeah. night, they went and did it anyway and just yeah, said... Yeah. Every night was meant to be an experience, I suppose, mm. for the audience as well as them so that they weren't bored. As I said, they wanted to confront people. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, during King Inc., he would, he would kind of grab somebody from the audience and like wrap them microphone cord around their neck yeah, and yeah. scream into their face. Drag them yeah. across the desk. Yeah, there was yeah. all, I mean, it was just insane. I mean, I saw them in January 82, which is not long after this, and I was at a fairly safe distance. In Brisbane? In Brisbane. In, um, yeah, and it was it was kind of pretty crazy. In fact, it was the craziest gig I ever saw, I think, in terms of feeling genuinely frightened. Uh, 10th of January 1982, New York Hotel. Um, and I just remember... Did, did you fear for your safety or...? I kind of just feared for what might happen. It was really genuinely unhinged as a show. Like, it was amazing and awesome and everything seemed to work, but I could never tell what was real and what wasn't because there was a real <laughs> line. I, I always remember telling this story to people, but you'd be watching this song and Nick Cave would be like, scream, death on a man, and it would mm. stop. And then you go, thank you very much. This next <laughs> song is called, you know, release the bat. <laughs> And it would go off again, like it was these mm. distinct gaps, and everything would stop. Mm. But but the mayhem was genuine. But then they yeah. would stop, and it would all be like, mm. "Thank you very much, very polite." Mm. Until the next <laughs> You've been song. great. Yeah. Mm. So and you just didn't really know where where the yeah. beginning and the end of any of this was, and that was really what was frightening mm. about it, I yeah. suppose. And what might have been dismissed as a kind of a pantomime, you seeing them in what January '82. Mm. There are lots of bands who are screaming into microphones with guitars, throwing their guitars around, and show of fake aggression. But a month earlier had been the gig that you just described. Yeah. Well, they all seem to embrace this violence. And I like the fact that the gig that you mentioned, the December 81 last gig in London, was the same month 
that they began recording Junkyard. Mm. So that complete dysfunctional kind of behaviour didn't stop them just popping into the studio and recording, you know, well, really confronting, but, you know, like a proper cohesive... Even having time to write those songs. A whole new album of songs. (laughs) (laughs) Who gets the time to do that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So should we talk about Junkyard? Produced by, well, mainly Tony Cohen. Yep. That's stalwart from previous Good Aussie producer. Nick Launay. He's credited on this, maybe the CD release. That might just be released, the bats. and Could B-side. be. And a fellow called Richard Mazda. Yes. Came in on a few tracks. He'd been, uh, he'd produced The Fall, I think. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so how do we feel about Junkyard compared to Prayers on Fire? I'd be interested to hear Graham's take on this because I... I thought they were, in some instances, going over old ground. I liked She's Hit, The Dim Locator, Several Sins, but, um, yeah, I didn't think it was as good as uh, Prayers on Fire. This is a dead tale If I could make these... It didn't have the spaces that Prayers on Fire had. It's taking it to another level, for sure. I mean, Dead Joe, Rolling Stone uh, called it, had a list of the most terrifying songs of all time, <laughs> and it was on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Big Jesus Trash Can with Barry Adamson Magazine on bass. Mm-hmm. I always get his name if I can. I like She's Hit as well. It was, it was a hit, a uh, UK 73 chart hit, mm-hmm. and oh, an really? indie number one hit. Uh, strange cover. I remember when it came out. I was absolutely birthday party devotee at this point. It mm. came out in May 82. And the cover was an Ed Roth cover who's he's famously done sort of, um, I don't know what you would call it, hot rod art, mm. I suppose. Is, yeah. You with know, hotted Tas- up cars. D- Tasmanian and, devil kind of type, type creatures with their animals. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and, you know, that the kind of... Hot rod cars. Yeah, yeah. The sort and of, very kind of 1950s, 60s kind of... Yeah, art. that was what he was with famous flames for. emanating from the side. And, and they approached him to do the artwork mm. for it. And by, by this time, apparently, he was a born-again Christian. And so he kept wanting to hear the album, but they didn't play it to him. And so they got, I think they paid $5,000 or something for the artwork, not much, Yeah. and got this image, which, you know, they were really happy with and thought was fantastic. But once he heard the album, he sort of disowned the whole thing. But I I found the image, the cover image, really confusing because I didn't understand what that had to do with this band and this music. But then I didn't Mm. understand why Tracy Pugh wore fishnet singlets, had a huge, you know, cowboy hat and a kind of, gay kind of cruising look mm. going on mm. even though yeah. he played this incredible bass sound I couldn't figure out how that fitted yeah. into this band <laughs> nothing made yeah, any sense yeah. my recollection of that Ed Roth mm. type image is that you would see that kind of thing on the side of vans panel like vans V8, V8 vans like which pan- is an Aussie thing panel vans it was yeah. a very mainstream yobbo um, kind of thing yeah yeah like tough guy, working class, mm. outer suburban or country town ruffian kind of... The kind of guy that would beat you up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you like the birthday party, that's, that's this kind of, kind of person That's kind would... of why it's good, I think. Yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, but when I you know, think of it now, but then it came out, I couldn't understand it. Mm. It just made no sense mm. because they were these cool guys doing this cool music and this edgy post-punk new mm. wave stuff and then they tap into an image like that and I just couldn't fathom it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the album itself, I think, both... 
Junkyard and Prayers on Fire, for my money, are extraordinarily cohesive and disciplined albums. Like, they're not rambling at all. The fact that she's hit goes for about six minutes is a real kind of shock because most of their songs are two, three, four minutes long, mm. really kind of structured in their own unstructured, formless kind of way, but as if they know what they're doing mm. every bar along the way. And, I mean, as an example, Dead Joe, which is really full-on, pretty heavy going, not my cup of tea at all in a way, but kind of interesting in its own way. But just when I'm listening to the song and I'm thinking, please stop, it does. This is the birthday party's gift from my point of view. Is this the beginning of a, some of his more misogynist lyrics that we that he's been oh. sort of castigated for over the years many many times like six six inch gold blade yeah <laughs> comes yeah. to mind he's getting into some seriously bleak and black and murderous kind of lyrics a lot of religious stuff it's quite bluesy this album compared mm. to prayers on fire they've lost some of the kind of swing and the groove if you like of the mm. the insistent bass lines of well, of, uh, well Tracy was in was in jail for a lot of well, not a lot of the recording but some of it so that may have had something to <laughs> do with it that's not going to help no, no. Well, so, do you re- remember why he was jailed? Uh, drink driving. And I think there was also some outstanding charges for theft as well. Uh, well, he pleaded guilty in the midst of all this to um, stealing a sewing machine mm. and clothes as well as rice and frankfurts from a supermarket. God so, knows what he was going to make with all of that. <laughs> Quite a potpourri. Yeah. <laughs> so he was sentenced to eight months jail and only served two and a half. Yeah, but got out for good behaviour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But, uh, yeah, when he was arrested, he apparently gave his name as Peter Sutcliffe, the uh, Yorkshire Ripper serial killer. Well, which was his maybe... friend was, was also called Peter Sutcliffe. Mm, yeah, they, yeah, that's right. They took him to uh, be talking about someone else. Mm. They mm. Um, also recorded a track with the go-betweens. In the mm. middle of this, yes. which is weird in itself. I can't imagine those guys all hanging out, Brisbane's go-betweens and yeah, a notorious yeah, yeah. birthday party. Yeah. But they uh, they managed to record a song called the After the Fireworks. Just because I, I haven't spoken, I don't mean that I've forgotten. They lived together for a while in London. In, in London. Yeah. Mm. Right. I think any Australians that kind of lumped themselves over there yeah, would, yeah. would get together, I suppose, just to survive. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I've not heard that, so I'd be interested if yeah, you dig yeah. that up, Graham, to see. It was released under the name The Tough Monks yeah. by the Birthday Party's <laughs> manager. I don't think the band, either band, wanted it released, but it was yeah, yeah. as a single. And Nick is starting to get into some very specifically American imagery. So Southern Gothic imagery? Yeah, yeah, that's right. To. So for instance, you know, there's the line in Hamlet, pow, 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 of, uh, he likes the look of that Cadillac, you know, which is a very specific American kind of rock and roll kind of image. And, mm. I mean, if you substitute Ford Cortina for Cadillac, you know, you're not going to have it's not the, same, the, same the same kind of edge. No. You can say the same for uh, Big Jesus Trash Can. I mean, Big Jesus Rubbish Bin. You know, where are you? <laughs> Big Jesus Wind Wheelie back. Bin. <laughs> Maybe it's oh, a bit later. Chili bin. If they <laughs> <use> chili <laughs> bin. That's right. And you've got the glorious singing stars of Texas, which is a line that I really like. So he's kind of setting his stall up for, for very, the future, very much for 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 what's to come. Well, I think as Graham said, they reached they'd reached an end point with this album. They'd taken it almost as far as almost as far as they could. They wanted the album. They said to sound like trash. Mm. So there was a lot of tops and bottom, no no mid-range. So the whole kind of thing was meant to sound. They did a lot of experimenting in the studio. Yep. Uh, and Mick Harvey played uh, drums and bass on a couple of things. So I think they were moving towards edging Phil Calvert out because mm. he couldn't get the drums right on uh, She's Hit, I think. 
He yep. couldn't hit the snare in the wrong way that they wanted yeah, it yeah. hit, which is in itself a very birthday party thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so what do we think about Junkyard then as a last album proper anyway? Mm. I think the my all-time favourite birthday party songs are probably from prior to Junkyard, mm. the more you know, kind of bass groove driven one a little bit funkier even yeah, yeah yeah whereas they are definitely getting into a more conventional in well you know relative to, to, to the birthday party sound more conventional kind of bluesy type feel with the music it's kind of less less interesting although yeah i mean the hamlet pow 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 i really like for instance and yeah there are cer- certainly song, songs i like but for me prez on fire is is probably my favorite i think it had run its course i mean it's interesting also that two of the members have subsequently died since the band finished which tells you that they were kind of for real in, mm. in some ways. Not that that's what they, why they died, but, but Tracy Pugh died in 1986, which is quite young. He, he, I don't know, he wasn't that old. Yeah, yeah. 29, I think it was. Yep. Yeah, and Roland Howe died in 2000. Um, yep. So there's only the three of them left. Um, but, yeah, I, I, as I said in the intro, I don't think there's ever been another band like them before or since, not an Australian band anyway. They were, they were for real, if you like. They certainly blazed some new ground and kind of, destroyed themselves in the process, I think. <laughs> it's a wonder that Nick Cave came out of it alive. In some ways, I mean, we've talked about the big bopper effect where, you know, jokingly that's certain bands who've lived on for several decades might have been better off if they'd perished in a... In, in, in a plane crash. In a light Fiery plane crash somewhere, somewhere in the United States. Uh, and the birthday party were never likely to outstay their welcome. Nick Cave's musical and lyrical exploration was never likely to kind of end in that way. They were explosive. They were, you know, an extraordinarily bright, shining light. While they were around, they were just about the most extraordinary band in the world for a brief period. And they were an Australian band and they were, yeah, just completely unique and they hold a unique place in the post-punk archive. (laughs) 